Welcome back, everyone. This is our fourth week in Politics and Religion series, which I hope has been a mind-growing experience for you. Uh, again, Chris Lee is here uh, leading, and uh, he's going to be doing a lot of the heavy lifting tonight. John Wood is our operator once again. And uh, we've talked several times, by the way, on uh, how we're not trying to recruit anyone to any of our personal opinions, and I hope that you are by now convinced that we are just trying to promote uh, responsible thought and biblical thought on your end without uh, you having to agree with us necessarily. We want you to, to be before the Lord and, uh, and agree with the Lord and do your best to find out what he's saying and all that kind of stuff. And it seems like everyone has been able to, uh, to experience some freedom to openly express their thoughts and, uh, and they're, they're able to do that respectfully. Um, they can freely discuss and stuff. It, it's pretty cool. We get to see it on uh, online. Um, even just uh, earlier today, um, Reggae shared a video, if you guys saw, um, that had some uh, some updates on Brianna Taylor that uh, Chris will also follow up on. Um, and it includes some details on how that case ended. Um, in our Facebook group, uh, on our page, we also get to see a, a bunch of conversations taking place on the, uh, on the different subjects. Um, I posted a, a picture of Jeff Bezos and a funny little remark about him and stuff. And uh, Grace Wong brought up some really good points about education, training skills, credentials, and how that plays into salary and how that, uh, in a way, justifies uh, differences in salary. And, you know, and it's, it's great thought. It comes from someone who's experienced in business in different countries and can compare it to the United States and stuff. And it's neat that we get to have this this little open space where we all get to talk, and uh, and and it's hard to figure all this stuff out, but uh, this is a place where we can learn together. But um, of course, the point of all this is to say that things aren't simple, and there are lots of pieces of information and different variables to consider, and so we want to stay humble, biblical, and respectful in discussing all of this. We want to stay teachable to keep learning more. Right. Well, today's topic is family values and gender identity, which um, <laughs> they, I mean, these are huge topics, right? They they used to not be. They used to be obvious uh, obvious things that the majority of the population just assumed and agreed upon, and yet it's not like that anymore. Uh, in the recent years, this has become a, uh, a raging topic of debate, and so we have a lot to say about that. Chris will start us off. All right. So uh, before I get going on uh, the meat of the issue of today, which is the family value and gender identity uh, topic, we are going to discuss, uh, like Rand mentioned, a little bit about the Breonna Taylor case uh, and the things that were, uh, I guess, decided by the grand jury um, last Wednesday. So uh, the grand jury, uh, basically a grand jury is uh, similar to um, uh, the jury of a criminal court case in the uh, the, the biggest difference is, though, is that uh, this jury is, uh, they come together and they analyze the evidence and they find out whether or not a crime has been committed and can be charged. So this is like the, a jury that deliberates before it goes to court, whether it should go to court or not. The grand jury uh, ruled that there will be no criminal charges filed against officers Mattingly and Cosgrove, who are the two officers who were shooting through the doorway of uh, Breonna Taylor's apartment and are the two officers that are uh, believed to have been firing the bullets that actually did hit Breonna. Um, 
Officer Hankinson, however, the one that shot from outside the apartment, uh, has been uh, charged with three counts of wanton endanger- endangerment. What that means is three of the ten rounds that he shot, the bullets ended up in the apart- in the apartment buildings of neighbors. And so uh, the Officer Hankinson, he pled not guilty for that charge and is currently out on bail. Uh, so what this means is, is that the grand jury found that the two police officers, uh, one the one that got shot, uh, as well as the other that returned fire with that officer, uh, they acted out of self-defense, and that they have ruled that uh, the killing of Breonna Taylor was a self-defense killing. What does that mean? That means that it is not a homicide, and homicide includes murder and manslaughter. How uh, the legal system differentiates between the two is murder is often premeditated and done with malicious intent, whereas manslaughter is uh, done uh, essentially from either recklessness, negligence, or a situation where there was no malicious intent. Most often, uh, manslaughter is attached to uh, deaths involved with drunk driving. So, um, by ruling that it was a self-defense killing, it is not a homicide and therefore is not a crime. That does not change the fact that the city did rule that it was a wrongful death and is still agreed to pay out the $12 million to Breonna Taylor's family because it was a wrongful death. But by the letter of the law, there were no crimes committed because the death was not a homicide. Uh, Specifically also, there have been... Uh, revealed through the ballistics report that the one person that acted dangerously, Officer Hankinson, none of his bullets were the bullets that hit Brianna Taylor. And so there's no way to attach even manslaughter to the person that was acting irresponsibly and not out of the self-defense. Um, so I'm bringing all this up. Uh, and obviously there are a lot of other issues that are also being publicized. Uh, as Rand said, that uh, Reggae shared a video on the page that talks a little bit more about whether the warrant uh, was justified. You know, did they have enough evidence to go into her house? Um, and then also even um, after the ruling came out, uh, one of the jurors who obviously has decided to remain anonymous is actually asking for uh, the records of their deliberation for the three days to be public so that people can find out why exactly they you know, came to that decision and he, the, the juror is actually claiming through his lawyer that the attorney general was almost forcing them towards a direction. And so there's still, there are still things that have yet to completely, uh, come out publicly to the general public that everyone is made aware of these things. You actually have to go and read documents and like research further if you want to know some of these things. But the point that I'm trying to make is that um, the burden of proof when we have to, when we, when the gov, when, sorry, the legal system is trying to find someone guilty of a crime is on the people trying to prove that a crime was committed. The idea of innocent until proven guilty, it is a constitutional right to all Americans. And so I, ideally what I want to kind of throw out there is the idea that, so as compassionate people who obviously have relationships with Christ, our, our definition of justice and morality are very tied. You know, we, we want for, because someone was wrongfully murdered, someone should be punished. You know, we do adopt a lot of times an eye for an eye type of mentality. However, with the way the legal court system is, 
unfortunately, that, that's not always and that's not often the case. You know, there is a there is plenty of reason that you can in, under the court of law justify what happened completely as self-defense and that it was not a criminal issue. So the big thing we want to talk about before we move on is this, the idea that um, the legal system, it's not set up in uh, the current system uh, to be a method of carrying out morality. Actually, it is a method of carrying out justice as defined by the letter of the law. And you are innocent until proven guilty and until guilt can be proven without a shadow of a doubt. It is not the case that you are guilty. And so that may or may not change the way you see the way uh, the grand jury ruled. And obviously, if you are upset about it, it, I mean, I completely understand. I feel like uh, with as much attention as it is getting, that is a natural response as well. Uh, but yeah, I just did want to kind of talk about it since we did talk about the issue last week with all the facts. Okay, so we're going to start going into the meat of today's uh, talk. Uh, and today's talk is going to be, well, we'll start with the idea of family values. And we're going to first go into that by looking at a variety of different family structures that exist pretty much throughout the world. So let's start with the one that is most common in America. We are, we see this in TV, movies. We see this as like the normal family and that is the nuclear family. Now the nuclear family is a very Western idea. It is in America the most common type of family structure. 65% of American households are nuclear families. Now what are nuclear families? These are families with a father, a mother, and children all living in one household. But even within nuclear families, there's a good variety of uh, you know different ideologies of how the family should work. Some families are a little more individualistic. So as soon as the children are adults, they move out and they are supposed to fend for themselves and find a place on their own and mature uh, mature towards adulthood in that way. Others are a little more collectivistic. Children may live at home uh, for a lot longer, maybe even up to uh, marriage. Now, the idea of the nuclear family, right, it, again, is the most common family structure in America. Now, one of the uh, family structures that are on the rise in America today is the single parent family. Now, single parent family have been on the rise since the 1960s. And the single parent family is exactly what it sounds like. It's parents with children out of wedlock. But this also means that the single parent was never married, divorced, or widowed. So this was just someone that had a child out of wedlock and decided to live uh, as a family with their child, maybe even children. Now, obviously there may be certain emotional and economic difficulties with single parent uh, families, but there is also an increased interdependence and independence in single parent families. So uh, I'm saying this to say, yes, single parent families are on the rise and the data is out on whether, you know, it's better or worse than one or the other. There are cases for both. Now, we are talking specifically now about these American styles. What is the most common type of family internationally? Well, in the world, the most common type of family style is the extended family. Now, the extended family, uh, these families, they include grandparents, aunts, uncles, cousins, all living under one roof. This is very commonly seen in Asian, Hispanic households. It is very similar to a different family structure we'll be talking about 
right after called the, vi the village family structure. And again, this is the most common type of family structure in the world. Now, what is the village economy family or how is that different? Well, this is actually the idea of the village economy is very specific to Africa and South America. Uh, the idea is here, and th this particular fact is very specific to a, a region of Africa, actually, where all brothers of your father are considered your father, all sisters of your mother are considered your mother. And so the idea of the village economy family, it gets rid of the idea of uncles and aunts. They're all fathers and mothers. And it also, by relation, gets rid of the idea of cousins. So cousins don't exist, it's all brothers. And it's called the village economy because this type of family structure, it started in villages where all kids pretty much of the generation are brothers and sisters, and all the adults of the previous generation are all mothers and fathers. So it the idea of it takes a village to raise a child, that is something that is actually the case in the village economy family. Now we're gonna also go through a lot of different types of families where uh, there, there may not be as many of them, but it is also a common type of family structure. But we'll try to go through these pretty quickly. Uh, one is uh, the childless family or cohabitation. So some couples decide intentionally not to have children. So a childless family is one that is married, but they decide not to have a kid. Cohabitation are a couple that have not married. Uh, now this decision may be voluntary or invo involuntary. Uh, because, you know, there may be reasons for not wanting to have children, but also there might be reasons for not being able to have children. And then cohabitation, like I said, it's amongst dating relationships. Another uh, type of family structure is the step family. The step family is uh, any possible combination of the merging of members of different nuclear families. So this could be the case where one or both parents were previously uh, either single parents or divorced or widowed uh, before finding another spouse. Uh, another type of family uh, that we see is co-custody families. So this is when uh, two divorced parents have legal responsibility over the children uh, that they've had. The children may alternatively live in each home or they might live in a primary home with regular visitations from the other parent. Another type of family is the adopted family. Uh, parents have adopted a child through uh, different uh, I mean, either the an adoption agency, through private adoption, through independent adoption, through foreign adoption, and it's very related to the idea of the foster family. Where a foster family, uh, it takes, uh, so it's a family that provides custody or guardianship for children whose parents are unable to take care of them. Uh, the family is usually assigned uh, by the government through social service agencies, and government aid is given to help out uh, this family to take care of uh, this minor. Another type of family that you may see is the legal guardian family. So the legal guardian family uh, is uh, when uh, the guardianship of a minor is documented and contractually passed on to someone else. Uh, the most common uh, guardian is the grandparent in America, but this may be because the original parents are either physically or mentally unable to take care of their children, either because maybe they might have passed or they have inca incapabilities. Um, but it is it must be done through the legal system. There is a contract that needs to be passed to pass over the guardianship of an individual. And uh, sometimes it's done through relatives, family, friends. But this is also one of the ways that uh, a family can be um, structured. 
Now, these next few um, are not necessarily uh, different types of families as they are just, uh, I guess, uh, different um, definitions maybe. Now, so here's, here's one. So family by choice. So this is um, actually the terminology was created by the LGBT community before gay, gay marriage was legalized. So now, you know, currently in America, since 2015, gay, uh, gay marriage has been legalized. And so a gay couple could be considered any of the previous um, definitions that we have listed. Uh, but this term, family by choice, is still often used by members uh, to explain non-traditional arrangements outside of a husband and a wife. Um, another type of family structure could be the arranged marriage family. So the arranged marriage family, very common in uh, Asian countries. It's where a person's spouse is purposely selected by a third party, either the person's parents or by a matchmaker. Uh, most commonly seen pretty much in Asia, China and India, Pakistan are the three uh, most commonly uh, found uh, nations. And then we have the polygamist family where it is one man with two or more wives living under the same roof. A vast majority of polygamous relationships occur in predominantly countries in Africa and Asia. Now, Mormon fundamentalists still also uh, accept and practice polygamy, but the Mormon church, their official stance is that they reject polygamy today, even though that was not the case uh, in a previous generation. And then the final thing we'll talk about is the flip side of the polygamy family is the polyandrous family, where it's one woman with two or more husbands living under the same roof. And most polyandrous relationships occur in South Asia, Central Africa, and South America, typically uh, with um, one woman and uh, two men that happen to be siblings, brothers, usually. We got uh, one final... Uh one final family structure that doesn't exist today anymore. It's called Leveret marriage. Um, and that, that comes up in the Bible. If you've uh, been familiar with some of the passages, uh, Leveret marriage, it, it literally means marriage with a brother-in-law and that, uh, like the, that word levier, uh, comes from Latin, which means husband's brother. Uh, if a man died without a child, then, uh, his, his unmarried brother, would marry the widow and uh, and the first child that they have together would be considered the child of the deceased man uh, and then the rest of the children could be theirs or it could be all of their children become the deceased man's etc but that's that's how it would work um, typically in Jewish society the first son produced in that union was considered the legal descendant of the dead husband um, and that happens in the Bible that happens in in uh, Genesis 38 you have Tamar and Onan and that's a, a levirate marriage that kind of goes in the wrong direction and uh, and bad things happen from that. Uh, you also hear levirate marriage brought up in uh, in Matthew 22 when the Sadducees are, are trying to question Jesus and and trap him with like trick questions and stuff. And they're they're asking, like, let's say that there was a, a, a woman that married a man and he died. So she married his younger brother. He died. So she married the next younger brother. He died and it happened for seven husbands. You know, they were all brothers. Which one's her husband in heaven? And so Jesus basically goes, you guys don't know anything because you don't believe in the resurrection. So uh, so that's brought up in Matthew 22 because leveret marriage was still practiced in that time. The most famous example of leveret marriage, by the way, uh, the Bible study is not about leveret marriage, but since we're talking about it, the most famous example is Ruth and Boaz, uh, the book of Ruth, right? Ruth's first husband dies. 
without having kids. Uh, and so Ruth's a widow and she kind of goes off with her mom and, uh, and she, her, her mother-in-law and she, uh, finds this guy named Boaz. And it turns out that he is a distant relative of her deceased husband. And so she asks him to, uh, to fulfill the leveret marriage as a kinsman redeemer. He would, you know, can you be the guy to redeem my, my dead husband? Uh, and so that my dead husband would have kids and stuff. Um, and uh, he wants to say yes, but in order to do that, there are relatives that are closer in the bloodline than he is. And so he has to get permission. And so it's a really cool, beautiful love story. But that's like the most famous Leveret marriage uh, moment in the Bible. Well, there are different family structures than simply husband and wife and kids and all that kind of stuff. And so um, here's a fun definition for you. What is, and if you have a pen and paper, go ahead and, and put it to use here, but what is your idea of the true definition of family? What is your idea of the true definition of family? And of course, you have to defend that. You know, why is that your definition? You also should come with the understanding that God has a definition and your definition might be different than God's. And in, in those two, uh, when that becomes the case, hopefully uh, you'll say you're wrong and God is right instead of the other way around, hopefully. But uh, but consider this uh, these questions, because the, the corners of this question is important. How many parents are involved in the true definition of family? Do they have to be different sexes, right? Does a family have to have kids in order to be a family? Or would you also say that a married couple that doesn't have kids is a family? Is it just a couple or is it kids uh, is it a family i mean is it is it a married couple or is it a family what what's uh which definition which or both apply um what about uh dating couples uh that do not have kids would you say they're a family i think most of us would say no but what about dating couples that do have kids would they be a family um because in that case you have biology uh, playing into children, but you don't have uh, any covenant and you don't you don't have marriage. You don't have uh, uh, either a governmental or a spiritual contract in any way. Uh, what about living together? Is that necessary as a feature of a family? Uh, if, if parents don't live together or kids don't live with the parents or something like that, is that, does that in any way break your definition? Is loving each other a defining feature of family? All of that, uh, boil it together and see what, what's your definition of family and, and how does it, how does it uh, operate within, within those, those different uh, parameters and things. Uh, there's more to say about that in terms of the role of government. Mm -hmm. So, uh, why are we talking about this in a series about religion and politics? Well, the fact of the matter is, is that the government plays a very big role in defining what a family is. Uh, for example, a marriage license must be applied for and filed and signed off by the state. Uh, the government determines the validity and the legitimacy of marriages, provides tax breaks for married couples and dependent children in those households. In 2008, if I mean, I've mentioned this before as well, uh, there was uh, a proposition to vote for whether gay marriage should be legalized in California in 2015. Uh, the U.S. legalized gay marriage nationally. You know, there are... Uh, uh, what is it? Definitions that are determined by the state uh, in terms of um, the age of consent, uh, which is 18 here in California. We, uh, there are uh, de definitions 
federally about how old you must be to marry. You cannot be married under the age of 18 in America. These are all things that are written into our laws as well. And so the government does play a role in defining what exactly a family is. The question, uh, oh, I mean, and then to go further, however, though, the government does not uh, determine who can cohabitate, who can have children. So the government is okay with, you know, people having children out of wedlock. The government is okay with anyone living amongst and with whoever they'd like. But the government does define what marriage and what families are. And so, uh, we're actually going to go into our first breakout session. So this breakout session, we're going to actually have you discuss maybe some of the questions that we've talked about or that we've, dis that we've posed about what is a family. And we'll give you a little bit of time to collect your thoughts on that. But also, we'll ask, how involved should the government be in the designation and definition of families? So this is going to require you to actually share what your definition of family is, as well as, you know, what should the government do in regards to defining and designating uh, laws to follow up with that definition of family. And so we're going to give you 30 seconds or so to collect your thoughts on how do you define a family? Now, Rand gave a lot of different hypotheticals of, well, would this be a family? Would this be a family? And then we're also going to give you a little bit of time to think about how should the government play a role in the definition and the designation of families. Welcome back, everybody. Um, we are uh, continuing our discussion then on uh, the issue of gender, sex and gender specifically. I wanted to take it more in a biblical direction on this. And so, uh, biblically speaking then, Sex and gender is not really a difficult issue. Uh, it's not. It's not one that's that uh, comes under much debate theologically. Even though, of course, in our society, uh, it, it is. Uh, it, it's a widely argued topic. You know, it just uh, among everybody in the United States of America, uh, and churches are starting to take different stances on it. But uh, even still, compared to other theological debates, this is not a big one um, in terms of popularity. Well, I'll show you a, a couple things um, just biblically on that. Uh, and what we say is, we don't have much to say because it's uh, it's not that hard of an issue. There aren't very many passages we need to point to. Uh, I'll show you that Genesis chapter 1 as a starting point, and then I'm going to point you to other resources to save time. But Genesis 1, in verse 26, it says, uh, God said, Let us make man in our image after our likeness. Verse 27, so God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. And God saw that uh, saw everything that he had made, and behold, it was very good. And I want you to pay special attention to verse 27 there. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, uh, and it was very good, right? Uh, that, that tells you that he has designated uh, the biological sexes of male and female, and then uh, he attaches the, uh, to that the idea of man and woman. You'll see it in uh, Genesis 2, uh, verse 23. It says, then the man said, uh, sorry, uh, God creates man and woman. And uh, Genesis 2 kind of elaborates on the process. God took uh, part of the man's side and created the woman. Uh, and when the man saw her, it says, the man said, this at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. And so the, the male is a man and the female is woman. And it's, uh, it's 
clear here from the uh, from the issue of design, from the way creation uh, took place, that the female is called woman not because she identifies as such and not because she has decided she is, but that has been decided by means of the, the design and, uh, and creation, that she is a woman, she is taken out of man, She's uh, that's the way that God made her. Um, that's what woman means, and that's how it began. So that's at least the starting point uh, on a conversation about sex and about gender. Um, and at no point in the Bible does it then turn gender into a malleable, optional, or changeable uh, issue. It's not something that... Uh, that one can decide to opt out of or anything. In fact, uh, there are some purely, uh, some clearly unmistakable moments in Scripture where God expresses His abject disapproval of adopting the wrong gender. A good example of that would be a law that He made for Israel, where He said in Deuteronomy 22, verse 5, A woman shall not wear a man's garment, nor shall a man put on a woman's cloak, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord, Yahweh, your God. Um, and that's not like to say that, uh, you know, like kids, they play around and you'll grab your, like your mom's skirt and run around in it or something. And that's, that's one thing, right? That, but that's different than taking on the identity of, and that's something that was being prohibited here, right? So if you, for some reason, back in your youth group days, were in a church skit and you dressed like a girl, like that's not what this is talking about. You know, this is more, cause I, I kind of think if you grew up in like youth group at church, everyone's done that. But th this is talking about taking on that identity. Uh, the, the law was specifically for Israel, which a lot of the laws in Deuteronomy and Leviticus are. And so people try to point at that and invalidate everything. But this crime that's being talked about here is specific, specifically designated as one of those crimes in that category of crimes that's considered an abomination to Yahweh your God. These are all things that are brought up in the New Testament and, uh, and you know, these are things that God hates regardless of what country it takes place in uh, or what society or what cultural setting it takes place in. So uh, God's expectation of family begins uh, with, uh, with a marriage between one man and one woman. And you, you kind of get that in, well, you, you more than kind of, that you clearly get that in Genesis 2, verse 24, where it says that uh, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. So that's how, that's how that works, that a man uh, leaves his father and mother, clings to his wife, holds fast to his wife, and uh, and they become one flesh. That's the starting point of the discussion. That's not the end point of the discussion. There's a lot more to say on it. Um, and if you want a lot more that is said on, on this issue, uh, go back into our archives on our series on the Ten Commandments. Uh, there are, I think, 34 messages on the Ten Commandments. When you get to the Seventh Commandment, there are three messages. Uh, one is called gender identity. The second one's called sexual identity. And the third one's called covenant identity. And those will go a lot more deeply into, into these issues. You know, how, how has God designed man and woman? How has God designed sexuality? Uh, and then how has God designed marriage? So that's really where we want to uh, go with that. But just looking at this, you know, marriage is meant to be one man, uh, one woman, one covenant, one lifetime. That's the way that we like to, to phrase it. Um, and it, 
it uh, in a certain way it rules out polygamy and other uh, family structures that we've discussed in you know in our opening uh, d- dialogue. Um, we polygamy though, just so you know, polygamy is never expressly forbidden in scripture, and that's this is kind of like a head scratcher. There's no no moment in scripture that says that polygamy is wrong. That's never said. Um, but what you see is earlier in history. Polygamy is is tolerated, and then as time goes on, it becomes clearer and clearer that marriage is meant for one man, one woman, one covenant, one lifetime. And you see that uh, most, uh, I guess, uh, most clearly in uh, the idea that church leadership, as you'll see in First Timothy three, uh, church leadership says that um, uh, an elder cannot be uh, an elder cannot be uh, uh, po- Polygamous, sorry. He has to be a one-woman man. He has to be the husband of one wife, is what it is. And not only that, but marriage is uh, understood in Ephesians uh, 5 to be a metaphor between Jesus, who's the groom, the bridegroom, and the church, who is the bride. And there's one bride, there's one bridegroom, there's one bride, and uh, and that's it. And so marriage is meant to be that metaphor not multiple brides. So the church, which is a collection of all believers, is one bride, not not multiple brides. Um, anyway, uh, we can get to into a very detailed discussion on all of that, and I don't want to sidetrack uh, the argument on or the discussion on the role of government in all of this. So again, if you want to find out more about that, you can get into our Ten Commandments series on the Seventh Commandment to look up gender identity, sexual identity, and covenant identity. Uh, but for now, let's get more into the recent topic uh, of our day, which is transgenderism, which is uh, popping up as a huge conversation, and uh, it's turning into a dispute on whether or not there are rights and uh, to to transgenderism, and also uh, whether or not people who are not transgender need to accommodate to and adjust for these things. Chris? All right. So, uh, currently, um, as we've discussed, uh, transgendered individuals... They are protected under anti-discrimination laws and are free to identify uh, with whatever gender that they choose. Again, I'm going to say what I said at the very beginning of this talk. The laws are not about defining morality as they are about agreeing and going with the precedent. So the burden of proof is to um, is on the side of determining whether someone is committing something illegal or not. And currently, there are no laws saying that um, a person cannot identify with whatever gender they decide. Now, um, again, like, I mean, if anything, if we're going to go and look specifically and strictly into the laws itself, uh, the laws seem to, more than anything, confirm that because in the anti-discrimination laws, they now include gender identity as one of the things that you cannot discriminate against, the law seems to pretty much confirm that the... Uh, the act of being a transgendered individual is not illegal, it's legal. Now, that in itself, in my opinion as well, should not be up for debate because, again, our laws do not define and describe morality as we as Christians define it. Instead, it's about making sure that nothing illegal is occurring and there are no laws being broken by someone being a transgendered individual. Now we now that issue hopefully is not an issue that we as Christians are debating non-Christians about. You know, we don't want to, 
you know, be on the on the outside saying, oh, transgenderism shouldn't exist. Like, that's not the debate that we should be engaging with uh, in with other, um, especially non-believers. The issues that are of a concern and are, you know, uh, something that we can discuss and we should be discussing are these. So I'm going to bring up four scenarios and questions that we are going to take into our final um, our final uh, breakout room time. So uh, one would be, uh, should minors be allowed to receive hormone therapy and pubertal suppression therapy? So currently, uh, if according to the laws and um, laws in the country, uh, you are not allowed to receive hormone therapy to either increase your testosterone if you're trying to transition from a woman to a man or uh, or testosterone depression and estrogen uh, regimens until you are at least 16 years old. This is an age de de determined by the uh, endocrinologists of America. They say that once you're 16, you've gone through puberty. And so unless you are 16, you're not allowed to. But is 16 an age where they should be allowed to since they are not adults? You know, we also define in our various in those laws themselves as well that you can't marry until you're 18. You're not an adult until you're 18. So should they be able to? However, something that is a little more alarming is that instead of hormone therapy, what is happening uh, in children as young as 10 is that there are pubertal suppression therapies. So what does that mean? That it's suppressing or delaying puberty to a later time for kids, for children who identify as transgender. In, instead of having to force them to go through puberty, this is the mindset of those who are pro allowing for these therapies to exist. Their uh, rationale is that it is cruel to make someone go through puberty of the sex that they were biologically born in, but they do not identify with gender-wise. So they suppress puberty and they allow for the puberty to be delayed by a few years. Should this be allowed in minors? Is this something that uh, we think the government uh, is currently doing in a correct way? So currently this is allowed. So children up uh, as young as the age of 10 are, are able to start pubertal suppression therapy and children, or I mean, children as in their minors as young as 16 are able to start hormonal uh, transition therapy. So that's the first issue. The second is, uh, so should, um, you know, let's go with this one. So uh, should all restrooms be gender neutral? So currently in California, uh, due to um, the rising number of transgendered individuals feeling that restrooms are one of the places that they find the most bias, you know, they may not identify with male or female. Um, one of the things that they are, uh, one of the things that California has legalized is that all single person restrooms in, uh, in the uh, state of California that are pub for public use must be unisex. So I'm talking like a single stall. There are no longer allowed to be gendered single stall restrooms in our state. Uh, so again, is this something that the government needed to step in and make make sure it happened? Now again, if you are following along the lines of um, 
accessibility and non-discrimination, you can make the argument, of course. But then you could also make the argument of, oh, this is my restroom that I have the freedom to say is one or the other. So there's a lot, there's a few questions in that one as well. Um, another question, uh, another situation is, is uh, should sex reassignment surgery, or they also call it gender confirmation surgery, which, by the way, you cannot have until you are 18 years old. So the minimum age for, for the actual uh, sex change procedure is 18. Should that be funded by government healthcare? Uh, it's in the same vein of the conversation of should abortions be funded by government healthcare? Should, um, or another vein of this type of question is should businesses that disagree with the practice be forced to cover these procedures? Um, again, a lot of these procedures, and specifically, I guess I'm talking about uh, the sex reassignment, gender confirmation surgeries, as well as abortions, are not being seen in the medical field as elective surgeries. These are seen as medical surgeries, and therefore they are primarily covered by insurances. So should this be something that our tax-paying dollars are going into if we, as a uh, religious community, are not in favor of. So that's another conversation that is it, that exists in the in the um, current conversation. Um, and then uh, for this purpose, the purpose of this conversation, this is the last issue that we'll talk about. But should transgendered athletes compete in professional sports? And if they do, which gender should they compete in? Now the reason I bring this up is because the Olympics that were supposed to be scheduled this year but have been postponed till next year. The Olympics in Tokyo in 2021 will be the first ever Olympics that will accept transgendered athletes in a variety of categories um, in the men and women uh, events. Now, another issue that I think is interesting to be had to be brought up is there is a uh, biological woman and her name is Castor Semenya. She is a long distance runner and she is, a, she was born a woman. However, every time she tests for her testosterone levels, they are abnormally high. So they think that she has an unfair advantage while competing. And they, the IOC, the International Olympic Committee, two weeks ago, they just recently ruled that she is unable to compete as a woman unless her testosterone levels are lowered and she starts to take some hormonal therapy. So again, I'll, I'll define kind of what they're saying. The IOC, the International Olympic Committee is saying, they are drawing the line of how to define gender strictly by looking at hormonal levels. It's not about how you are born. It's not about what you identify with. It's what are your hormonal levels at? So if you are a transgendered individual that would like to compete in, for example, let's say that we had a transgendered woman that wants to compete with the men. If her testosterone levels are not at the levels accepted for a man, she cannot compete. If a, if a transgendered man wants to compete with the women, if his testosterone levels are not suppressed to the levels of an accepted woman, he cannot compete. But this woman, Castor Semenya, born a woman, 
with incredibly high testosterone, but like completely female, her testosterone levels are too high. And so she is not able to compete unless she takes hormone therapy to lower her levels. Why do I bring this up? Is this the best way to define what gender is going forward? And it seems as though the Olympics have made that decision that gender is not so they kind of went a third route. Gender is not how you're born. Gender is not how you identify. Gender is just about your hormonal testosterone levels. Is that the best way to do it? That's the conversation. It, I, there are obviously a lot of debates to be had. And so with all of that, we are actually going to send you out to the next breakout room. Where the big question is, is again, we're going to talk about uh, how much should the laws of the government play a role in these issues? Now, we talked about four issues. Um, hopefully, you remember them. If you don't, I think the quest, the uh, someone was taking notes or putting the questions up. Um, but yeah, I'm gonna we're gonna give you again a few seconds to think about these four things, and then this breakout time is gonna be actually a little longer. We're gonna have you guys break out for let's say 20 minutes, and so we're gonna have you guys. Think about these four things and then discuss, and then we'll have you back in 20 minutes. All right, welcome back, guys. Uh, so I actually did want to just add one thing um, that was uh, amended to the law very recently that I just found out that I, as I was looking it up. California actually changed their laws in regards to minors marrying in 2019, last year. And so minors can marry if they... Uh, if they pass one of three conditions. It's one, uh, they have a high school diploma. Two, if one of the partners is pregnant. And three, uh, if the parents are interviewed by the state to see if there's no uh, coercion or um, any kind of abuse going on. And the the couple, the prospective couples also interviewed to make sure that there are no psychological uh, damages that are occurring. And so minors can marry in California as of 2019, as long as one of those three things are um, satisfied. All right, so Rand is actually going to go ahead and answer kind of a, a mixed bag of questions that have to do somewhat with this topic. So Rand... Uh, yeah, okay. Um, we're we're kind of bringing it down to an end here, so we're, we're going to close this off. But I did want to at least address some of the stuff that uh, is asked on a on a pretty frequent basis, either to me hey, Red, or just in um, general. I think you need to try on your video. Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> Was Elias's face just yeah. uh, staring at everyone? I'm sorry. Yep. Um, yeah, I wanted to, uh, to just address some questions that are asked often. Um, either to me or to just people in general. But um, this would be a pretty good example of where uh, my position on some of these questions would differ from other pastors or other Christians of, uh, of similar theology. So we might be on the same side theologically and yet still practically, pragmatically, uh, we might come out to different opinions on some of this stuff. So question number one is, uh, what's my view on feminism? My view on feminism is that uh, 
in terms of the role of men and women in the church, I think everybody's clear in our doctrinal statement that uh, leadership in the church is male, leadership in, in marriage is male. And that's something that actually I'm going to preach on this upcoming Sunday, um, because we're still in the book of First Timothy, we're covering chapter 2, where maybe the uh, the most well-known passage on that topic is, it's either First Timothy 2 or uh, sometimes First Corinthians 11 is kind of the one that causes a lot of uh, discussion. Sometimes... First Peter three, sometimes Ephesians five, but uh, I think First Timothy two is the one where the most heat comes out. Uh, my view on feminism, though, is that uh, in terms of uh, spiritual roles of men and women, they're very different. And then anything outside of that realm, I'm kind of uninterested in. In a way, I'd say I don't see a a problem with uh, equal pay, equal you know, equal work, equal pay. Like that's that's fine. You know, I don't I don't see any issues with that. Uh, but not everybody is on the same page on that uh, theologically. Uh, I think that uh, the standards of, of our culture today, we have a basis of education and training and aptitude that is more available to everybody in society, uh, uh, whether male or female. And so I don't think that we need to make uh, hard distinctions between the treatment of men and women uh, professionally. That's uh, that's just my, my position on that. The second uh, question is, uh, would you approve a gay couple adopting a child? Now, if you back it up a bit, uh, I think everybody knows, again, from our doctrinal statement, that my position on homosexuality is that it is clearly a sin. Uh, I am 100% against, uh, against acknowledging homosexuality as... Uh, as uh, a guiltless kind of marriage. That is an abomination. Um, Leviticus 18, there's just, there's, there are plenty of places to go with that. But uh, am I against a gay couple adopting since gay marriage is legal in the United States of America? And my answer to that, surprisingly to some people, is no, I'm not at all against a gay couple adopting. And the reason why is because I do believe that gay parents adopting a child is better than no parents adopting a child. Uh, my concern is that the child has someone to raise him or her, and uh, and I don't think any set of parents will be the, uh, will be the best set. But uh, you know, if it's going to be a pair of unbelieving parents, that's going to be the same thing. So uh, so my position on that is is uh, if a gay couple adopts a child, I would rather a uh, a couple of believers, you know, a man and a woman who are married adopt a child. That'd be the ideal situation. But otherwise, my concern for the child is I hope. The child gets adopted one way or another. Third question is, uh, can a practicing homosexual be saved? Um, and by the term practicing, ah, it, it's it, it's a hard question to answer because it kind of divides into two, uh, two directions. If the practicing homosexual has been confronted by scripture and uh, been given clear exposition on the issue of homosexuality and called to repentance on it and has refused to repent, I don't think that's actually a saved Christian. If uh, someone is a, a, be, becomes a Christian and has not yet been taught on the issue of homosexuality, but hypothetically, if they were taught on that and were given time to meditate upon it and reflect and repent of it, would eventually submit to the authority of Scripture, then I would think uh, the seed of salvation is there. See, because for instance, you and I, when we became Christians, we have we have not yet been sanctified out of every single sin that we struggle with, right? 
But as time goes on and as the sanctification process happens, spiritual growth happens in your life, there is a transformation from what you used to be to what you're meant to be. And so uh, when a homosexual, if, uh, if anyone actually, it doesn't have to be the sin of homosexuality. If someone is, uh, is calling him or herself a Christian and saying, but I do not repent of this thing, uh, I am proud of this thing, it's part of my identity, it's who I am, and, and no one should tell me that it's wrong. When someone takes that position, I simply don't believe they're saved. I think that they stand on an authority that, is, uh, that they hold higher than the Bible. And that, uh, that denies a saving faith. But if, uh, if they just haven't been trained yet, if they haven't learned it yet, but at some point would and will, then uh, yes, that practicing homosexual can be saved under that very peculiar circumstance. The last question um, that uh, I'll discover is that uh, should Christians be obligated to provide services for gay, for gay couples? Um, I get asked this a lot. Um, and uh, I, I think, like personally, I think no. I don't think they should be forced to. Uh, I, I don't think they should be obligated to in any sense. Um, Especially if you stand on the conviction that, uh, like, if you're if you're supposed to bake a cake for a homosexual wedding, you know, and you feel like you're then participating in and endorsing and celebrating a homosexual marriage, uh, I don't think anyone should be compelled to do anything against their conscience. Uh, and I think anyone who forces someone to do something that they believe is wrong is guilty of sin before the Lord. So, uh, no, I don't think Christians should be obligated to provide services for gay couples. However... Uh, when someone who's a professional, such as a, a baker or a photographer or something, is asked to do a gay wedding, and if they decide to accept it because they don't want to discriminate, uh, and they provide their services for a fee anyway, you know, and uh, their position is clear that they're heterosexual, they're Christian, all that stuff, um, and if they perform that service, I, I don't necessarily think they've done something entirely wrong. Uh, and that's that's weird because like uh, if you if you sell cakes at at a supermarket, if if you work at Ralph's and you see a heterosexual cu uh, couple come in and buy a cake from you, you're, it's fine. And then if a homosexual couple comes in and buys a cake from you and you sell it to them, I don't think you've done something wrong. You're you're just doing your job, you know. So I'm not I'm not so sure that uh, that every every baker and every photographer is necessarily doing something wrong when they uh, when they are doing something that uh, that. In, soci in that society, it's understood to be legal and uh, and acceptable. Um, my example on this is uh, Naaman from the Old Testament. You know, he's he's a guy that works for uh, a different king, and he has to help his king go in to to the king's uh, temple where he worships some other god, and he has to help him kneel down. Well, this guy Naaman, he you know he's he's become a believer, and so. He just prays to God. He's like, God, I got to help my king kneel down to his other God and worship him. And that's like, that's my job. And I don't mean to do that to worship this other God. I worship you, but please don't hold me guilty for doing this. And, uh, and that seems to be in the tone of the narrative, um, uh, an exonerating, uh, moment where you see his heart saying, even though I have to do this thing for this unbeliever in his unbelief, carrying out his false religion. Um, know that my heart belongs to you and I'm not doing it to celebrate it. I'm doing it because I, I have to. That's my job. So those are my answers to, to those questions. And again, people of similar theology don't always arrive at the same conclusions. And uh, and I hope that, that uh, when you meet people who have different positions on things like that, 
that uh, you can still discuss it in a gentle, respectful, loving, and biblical manner. Why don't we close in prayer and we'll be done for the night. And then, um, oh, by the way, next week, I just I want to let you know, next week our topic is going to be on uh, the legalization of, uh, of various things like guns, drugs, uh, laws surrounding COVID-19, right? Just uh, we're going to talk about the topic of legalization and all that kind of stuff. So hope you'll come back for that with uh, renewed curiosity and interest, um, all that kind of stuff. Let's pray to close. Father, thank you so much. And again, um, we are so grateful that we get to uh, to just uh, bring our minds into a different arena where uh, we get to, to expand our understanding on uh, certain issues that don't get talked about a lot in church, um, at, cert- at least not from the political angle. And so we hope, Lord, that we would become better at serving you, at worshiping you, uh, and that would be reflected even in how we function as citizens of the United States and how we uh, how we conduct ourselves as members of society, even if we aren't citizens of this country in specific. Um, God, we ask that uh, that you would breed in us a responsibility to take care of our society, to care about it, to steward it well, and to use our uh, our legal means to uh, bring about. Uh, better ends for uh, for everyone around us uh, we want to we want to prevent sin we want to promote righteousness um, and and do that in such a way that that consciences don't get seared and people don't get used to sin being normal so that it would be easier for us to communicate the gospel and uh, and bring people to a, a better and brighter understanding of the gospel and and the message of Jesus Christ so Take care of your church and uh, and help us to come back and learn more next week. Thank you. And in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.